This is Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church, Season 2. In Part 1, we took a look at some of the sociological reasons for persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire. Then last time, we began a narrative chronology of the waves of persecution, and we ended with the Emperor Antoninus Pius. A new approach in dealing with Christians was developed by Marcus Aurelius, who reigned from 161 to 180. Aurelius is known as a philosopher-emperor. He authored a volume on Stoic philosophy titled Meditations. It was really more a series of notes to himself, but it became something of a classic of ancient literature. Aurelius bore not a shred of sympathy for the idea of life after death and detested as intellectually inferior anyone who carried a hope in immortality. Reversing the Trajan policy of not going after Christians, Aurelius crafted a system of spies to gather intelligence and evidence against them. Rather than check riots that frequently called for martyrs' blood, as the previous emperors had done, Aurelius encouraged them. It was during his reign that Christians began to be blamed for natural catastrophes. The supposition was that the gods were upset that Christians weren't being persecuted by good Romans. With this as their moral backing and making up for lost time, Persecution under Aurelius moved to a new level of brutality. Thousands lost their heads or were tossed to beasts. It was at this time that Justin Martyr became one. But we have to note that as fierce as the Aurelian persecution was, no official edict calling for an empire-wide extermination of Christians was issued. Nor did one come during the reigns of Septimius Severus from 193 to 211 or Maximinus from 235 to 238, when persecution of the followers of Christ was renewed. The Severian campaign sought to root out the church in Egypt and North Africa, while the Maximinian chapter aimed only at Christian leaders in specific locales. But the mid-3rd century saw a dramatic change. As Rome celebrated its thousand-year anniversary, people began casting longing eyes back to the golden age and the glory days of a bygone era of power and prosperity. In comparison, Rome now seemed a tottering old hag hobbling along on arthritic knees. She was no longer able to kick away the barbarian dogs that were snapping at her heels. The superstition of pagans, who of course were in the vast majority, believed that the gods who'd favored their ancestors for their devotion were now punishing them for allowing the Christians to reject them. That being the case, wasn't it morally right for the public good to actively go after the followers of Jesus? Decius only ruled from 249 to 51, but he was convinced that maintaining Rome's cultus was essential to political stability and to return a state of prosperity. As soon as he took the purple, he gave orders that everyone in the emperor had to swear by the emperor's genius, that is, the practice of emperor worship as we talked about last time. This flushed out Christians who refused. They were declared traitors, enemies of the emperor, state, and public good. Their very presence was deemed a dangerous blight since the wrath of the gods was on them. As harsh as all this sounds, The evidence indicates that at first, the goal wasn't to kill them so much as it was to get them to recant under the threat of pain. 
you know, getting a Christian to recant was far more effective than killing them because many people are inspired by martyrdom. And, of course, the martyrs were held in ultra-high esteem by the church. So much so that a bit later, we're going to find church leaders telling church members to use common sense and not run around making a big to-do about being a believer just so they would be arrested and executed. No, most officials didn't want to make martyrs. They preferred apostates. Think of it this way. In ancient warfare, men would psych and pump themselves up in anticipation of battle. Once battle began, you wanted to present yourself like a man, tough, courageous. When you see your buddies taking blows and giving as good as they get, well, you stay shoulder to shoulder. You're a band of brothers. But when one guy turns his back to the enemy and begins to run, well, it's a fast-spreading contagion of fear. Soon the entire line collapses in what's called a rout. Watching some Christian publicly executed for their faith often inspired as many as it freaked out. But hearing of Christians recanting and returning to the paganism of their past made many wonder why they should remain true. Under Decius, the first to be seized as treasonous were church leaders, the hope was that a leaderless church would quickly fall apart, and in some places it did. But in others, it went on as if nothing had changed. In those places where the church winked out, it was because by the mid-third century, Christianity had already produced a brand of faith that was more image than substance. Now, shocking as it may seem to some, there's been shallow Christians since the very beginning. And now, under Decius, they were flushed out into the open where they were forced to recant or die. Recant they did because their faith was more social than sincere, but a host of others suffered martyrdom. After a year, it was clear that Decian persecution wouldn't succeed in its goal of ending the faith. In July of 251, Decius was killed in battle and his edict was no longer enforced. In 253, Valerian became emperor. He was at first friendly to the faith, but a series of calamities stirred his advisors to press him to renew the pogroms in appeasement of the gods. During this wave of persecution, several great leaders of the church were killed. The 40-some years from 260 to 303 were a time of relative peace for Christians, but it was the proverbial calm before the storm which arrived with the ascension of Diocletian. While his origins are sketchy, it seems that Diocletian was a slave's son who worked himself up to supreme power. An utterly brilliant administrator, Diocletian recognized what previous rulers ought have, that Rome was too large to be led by a single ruler. Now, I'll leave it to you to listen to Mike Duncan's The History of Rome podcast to learn the details of Diocletian's reign. Edward Gibbon calls Diocletian a second Augustus, because he believes that Diocletian framed a new empire rather than just restoring the old. And indeed, Diocletian distanced himself from his political ancestors and heritage. He very consciously adopted the ostentatiousness of an Eastern ruler, something that previous Roman rulers would have condemned as scandalous. It was he who divided the empire into a formal East and West, each with its own major Augustus and subordinate Caesar. In his first two decades, Diocletian honored the toleration edict that Gallienus had passed in 259 that restored Christian churches and burial places. 
It seems that his wife and daughter, along with most of his court and most of the officials, were either Christians or were favorable to them because their wives and friends were. The emperor himself was a pagan of the more superstitious flavor. But as a pragmatic politician, he believed that restoring the empire demanded a return to the old religion. Although, due to family and friends, he postponed the religious question, ultimately he had to take it on. There could be no peaceful coexistence between Christianity and paganism. It was high noon in Diocletian's court. The chief instigator in all of this was Diocletian's co-ruler, his son-in-law, Galerius. He prevailed on Diocletian to authorize the persecution for which his reign has become so well known. In 303, at Galerius's urging, Diocletian issued a series of edicts calling for the total eradication of Christianity. Places of worship were to be torn down, their sacred writings were to be burned, and the clergy were to be slaughtered. The next year, all Christians had to engage in a very public display of emperor worship or face immediate execution. Although it wasn't exactly like this, it's close enough. A raised dais was built in the center of town with a little altar where people would drop a pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord. Then they would take a few more steps and be handed the libelli, that little scroll affirming that they were good, loyal subjects. Another path led from the altar to a chopping block where an executioner stood. Those who refused to drop incense and said, Jesus, not Caesar is Lord, well, they took that route where they got a haircut at the neck. Thousands died. In the Eastern Empire, where Diocletian and Galerius ruled, the persecution was especially fierce. The Western Augustus, Maximian, fastidiously carried out the edicts in Italy and Africa, but his subordinate, Constantius, who was ruling in Gaul, Britain, and Spain, refused to execute people just for their faith. Persecution effectively ended just two years later in 305 when Diocletian abdicated and retired to grow cabbages at his estate. But it was Galerius who'd put Diocletian up to the persecution in the first place, and Galerius stepped into the role of the Eastern Augustus. So we asked the question, why didn't the persecutions continue? Well, the answer to this is because Galerius realized it wasn't working. He admitted that the policy of eradicating Christianity had failed miserably. In fact, in reversing himself, he wrote, quote, Wherefore, for this our indulgence, they ought to pray to their God for our safety, for that of the Republic and for their own, that the Republic may continue uninjured on every side, and that they may be able to live securely in their homes, unquote. It's reported that at the end of his life, as he lay abed ill, Galerius asked his Christian subjects to pray for him. To encourage their prayers, he passed an Edict of Toleration in 311, officially ending persecution. It was followed a year later by Constantine's now famous Edict of Milan, saying much the same. Since we shared a little about the interplay of the early church in the Roman Empire and their enemies to the east, that is the Persian Sassanids in season one, I'm not going to go into that whole chapter now, except to say that when Christians were persona non grata in the West, the Sassanids welcomed them with open arms. Many Christian refugees fled there, turning the East into a Christian enclave that quickly developed into a headquarters and a center of scholarship. 
The Sassanids followed the old line that the enemy of my enemy is my friend and assumed that the Christians would be allies in their ongoing tussle with Rome. But when Constantine revoked persecution and claimed to be a Christian himself, well, the Sassanids began to fear that Christians might be a dangerous fifth column in their ranks, and persecution began there. More of the details to that are to be found in Season 1. Let's end this short series on the persecution of church in the first centuries by considering the impact that it had on the church. Most of the emperors eventually realized, as did Galerius too late, that persecution didn't really work. Killing Christians didn't end the faith. On the contrary, many were won to Christ by observing the gracious and courageous way that so many of the martyrs died. A quote from the early church father Tertullian is often given at this point. He said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The sheer number of Christians may be less due to persecution, but one positive effect that persecution yielded was that those who did claim the name of Christ were real deal followers of the Son of God. People didn't join a church just so that they could pad their resume or enhance their social standing. Being a Christian was risky across the board. People stood in danger socially, economically, and of course physically. Persecution also encouraged the spread of the faith to new regions as people fled hostility. Persecution helped to settle the challenge that church leaders faced on what belonged in the canon of scripture. The tests that they applied to settling the canon had to be rigorous because they knew that people would just simply not give their lives for spurious inkings. Persecution also sharpened the thinking of church leaders as they defended the faith in the face of often erudite attacks by pagan critics. What's interesting is that the vast majority of arguments against the faith voiced by critics and skeptics today were leveled by critics in the first through third centuries. Those critics were learned men, skilled in philosophy and rhetoric. But each of their objections was amply answered by the early church fathers, known today as the apologists. The answers that modern-day apologists use in defense of the faith are largely built on the pioneering work of those originals. Even many of the objections raised by the new atheists are rebutted by 2,000-year-old answers. Though it's questionable whether or not they ever read them, the early apologists wrote some of their defenses of Christianity to no one less than the emperor himself, seeking to reason with him on why persecuting Christians was just bad policy. These apologies, as they're called, weren't wild-eyed polemics threatening the emperor with God's wrath if they didn't lighten up. They were most often attempts to use Roman law, Greek philosophy, and the weight of tradition, which, remember, the Romans put great store by, to persuade the emperor that Christianity ought to be tolerated along with Rome's other faiths. Well, all of that is persecution's upside. What about the down? Believers ended up so busy protecting themselves that there was scant opportunity for them to develop a deep theological heritage to enrich those who came after. Yes, there were a handful, like the apologists, who managed to get out some material. But with the many thousands who did, in fact, come to the faith, we would expect a much larger body of literary work. Persecution both limited the opportunity to produce that 
and what work was produced was frequently used to fuel the fires that Christians were then burnt on. Another problem that rose, and we dealt with this in season one, was what to do with those believers who faltered during persecution and gave in to the pressure to recant. What was to be done with those Christians who burned a pinch of incense, said Caesar is Lord, took a labelli, and then once the threat of persecution passed, repented of recanting and wanted to come back to church. These were called the lapsed because their faith had lapsed in the heat of persecution. This became an especially trying issue after Constantine officially revoked persecution once and for all, and it became a problem for two reasons. First of all, Constantine took over right after the 10th and most virulent phase of persecution. It was also empire-wide, though it was enforced more firmly in the East. A major test used for weeding out believers was the requirement of swearing by the emperor's genius, which, as we've seen, the faithful could not do. But a bunch of the lapsed did. And that leads to the second reason. All those who'd lapsed realized that with the Edict of Milan, official persecution was most likely over for good. So instead of staying decanted so as to avoid upcoming persecutions, well, they figured that it was safe to return to church. And here they came. So the church was split over whether to allow them back or not. Some favored restoration, others not so much. Many fellowships split over the issue. Church leaders took sides in the debate and fired off sometimes heated missives at one another. For more on this, you can listen to the episode in season one called The Lapsed Dance. Another negative effect of persecution was a kind of warped result of a positive. The faith and courage of the martyrs not only challenged the shallowness of rank paganism, it inspired people to follow their example. But not just to live by faith in Jesus, they went further and longed to die like their heroes, the martyrs. The desire to suffer martyrdom became a problem that church leaders had to address at several points. <laughs> Think of it this way. Instead of Pastor Alexius asking for volunteers for the nursery ministry, well, he had to plead with his people to not go out to the marketplace crying out that they were Christians, please somebody arrest and torture me to death. But that gives us a hint as to just how highly the martyrs were regarded in the early church. When they were regarded that highly, it's not difficult to see why there were many in the church who regarded lapsed believers as spiritual scum. What made for a major brouhaha in the church was when it wasn't just everyday members who'd lapsed, but it was a pastor. Question then was, what are we to do with this guy? Shall we allow him back into his ministry? And what of those that he served communion to and baptized? Does their baptism still apply? Or do those people all have to be baptized again by a pastor who didn't lapse? And so the complications ran. Mm -hmm. 